Hey, Ray. Hey, Marcus. How you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Woke up a little bit sore after a big bike ride yesterday and did what I tend to do when I wake up really sore is grab a little CBD and I'm feeling better. That's good. You know, our joints don't take exercise and extreme activities very well the older we get. And a lot of people who are younger are experiencing the same thing. That's why we're pretty excited about our sponsor, 1CBD. And a lot of people seem interested in the fact that 1CBD is consciously created. They use 100% organic sources. They employ a holistic removal of all the THC. And they select the best strains. And the strain is very important when working with controlling pain. They are also halal and kosher compliant. They are non-GMO. They are made in the USA. And we've set it up so that you can save 20% off your first order when you use the code BALANCE. I I don't know. We're we're imbalanced, but we're using the code (laughs) BALANCE, so keep that in mind. You go to 1CBD.com, that's O-N-E-C-B-D.com, and they're at 1CBD Life on Twitter if you want to follow them there. CBD in all forms, liquid, gel caps, and they give you the choice. All you have to do is hit their website, 1CBD.com. It's 1CBD. Manage your pain and achieve a renewed sense of balance. Ray Coop checking in on the imbalance history of rock and roll. Hey, Marcus, how you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic. How about yourself? You know, we've been doing a little traveling on the podcast. Can I talk you into jumping into the imbalance time machine and going back to the 80s with me? Totally. I am totally game with going back to the 80s. You want to go to Bath, England, where there was a burgeoning recording scene going on because of home recording, basically? I've never been to England, so yes, I am all about going to bath. And I might need a bath, but we're going to start this episode of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Anyway, we're talking about going to Bath, England, because that is where Peter Gabriel set up shop when he started going solo. He converted Ashcombe House into his studio away from studios. He had the house, right? And he had that old barn that we saw in the documentary we both just watched. We'll talk about that a little bit. And he created his musical universe in a converted barn with the studio that he built right there at his house in Bath. So that's why we're going to Bath to see Peter, really. It's not surprising that Peter Gabriel built a studio in a building on some property. He's totally the type of person and musician that would do something like that. And you get that vibe from him because of how he's been over the years with not only his Genesis music, but his subtitled solo albums. And each one of them conceptually awesome and very different. But you can tell that he put a lot of time into making all of those records. You're heading in the right direction, bro. Hey, that's all I'm going to say. And the way we get to head in any direction is because of our sponsors. One CBD. Check them out at onecbd.com and buy Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro online at crookedeyebrewery.com. But we always tell people to check them out on Facebook because that's where you can find out what's going on over there, Crooked Eye. Well, folks, we are definitely talking about Peter Gabriel this week on the podcast. And specifically, we want to focus on one of the greatest albums of the 80s recorded at Ashcombe House with Daniel Lenoir and a cast that is amazing. We're talking about So 
the classic Peter Gabriel album here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. You know, Ray, I still remember hearing this album for the first time. I got to be honest with you, I cannot remember the first song I heard. I remember heading over to Wax Tracks Records in Denver, Colorado, buying the album and playing it from start to finish over and over and over. It still is Stem to stern, man. Right I to mean, the seriously. To the very end. It reflected everything that Gabriel had been doing solo up to that point and basically said, look, I'm putting it all together here. Yeah. This is the best stuff I have. I mean, now, Dan did an amazing job. We, we, we should talk for a second about the documentary you turned me on to, which is a uh, classic albums. I, I think I guess it was on Axis. I caught it on Prime Video. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically a documentary of the making of the album. So I don't know, man. I learned so much. I felt like I didn't know anything when I started watching. I know the, the amount of knowledge that was uh, thrown out and just the amount of cool information that everybody shared about the behind-the-scenes work how it all flowed together and how it all came together was incredible and to hear it uh from daniel lanois perspective as well as like tony levin and manu kache came in and spoke yeah, a lot and of other people too, laurie man. There anderson so many- yeah yeah so some great people really spoke about their part in this masterpiece of an album. It's one of those albums that's as close to perfect as it gets, and there are many of those in the rock and roll world. I I really, really am looking forward to digging in and talking about this and just all of their cool perspectives and uh, who's on this album, because I think a lot of that gets overlooked when you think about this album. People don't go into those details as much. Because there's a lot, man. That's all I'm going to say. There's a lot. Well, look at Peter Gabriel. Before we talk, get into talking about So, look at where he came from. Genesis, of course, the early days of Genesis. He gets to the Lamb. He feels something different happening. And in the documentary, David Fricke from Rolling Stone talks. I don't always see eye to eye with him when he's on these documentaries and stuff. But the one thing that he said was absolutely true. When you look at it and think about it, the first four solo albums are more of a continuum rather than individual concepts and records. It is a continuum of something that Gabriel was working on, and together they are pure genius. Individually, they are amazing records that set a career in motion that takes us to 1986. And uh, one of the people that I actually know that was in that documentary, Gary Gersh, was in the middle of that. He worked for Geffen Records at the time. They'd had him for a couple records, and they were looking forward to a new album from Peter Brian Gabriel, but they had no idea what was going on and what was taking so long over there in the country in Bath, England, right? From what everybody said in the documentary, the one year to make that album was the fastest album Peter Gabriel had made at that point. Does home recording at the barn in the backyard, taking uh, you know a pot of coffee and and some lunch, and walking across the yard with the dog and going to work, it kind of gives you that opportunity to do it or not do it, work in the middle of the night or whatever you want to do, and that became his norm out there. There's connections to this man in Philadelphia, the support and love that he got on the radio in Philadelphia for those first four solo records uh, is unbelievable because it wasn't happening everywhere. So we got a different perspective here. And that was before you came to town. What was Denver thinking of Peter Gabriel going into the so record? I know his earlier stuff from the self-titled albums was getting played on like KZY and some of the rock radio stations because they had that 
AOR vibe that, not vibe, but they were AOR radio stations just like WMMR was. So we got to hear a bunch of the songs. They went very deep on it at that time. It was... Before so? Before so, they. De- I definitely heard Biko on the radio. I definitely heard cool. Games Without cool. Frontiers on the radio. Because I, I don't definitely know. You know heard there are some songs that, are, that I feel are, are like amazing and that everybody should know. And, if, and I'm glad to hear that other major cities like Denver got to hear some of them on the radio, which is how we got exposed to music yeah. for the most part back then. Yep, and Salisbury Hill, another just brilliant song. Just we put could go together on and so on well. Yeah, so we could do. We really could. Yeah. But can we talk about the album? So I don't want to talk about how many it sold and where it charted and all yeah. that. I think we got to talk about the music and who helped put it together and how. And that's where the documentary really, it really gave us a, a, a lot to go on. Daniel Lanois lived in that barn pretty much for a <laughs> year. And when Peter Gabriel reached out to him and said, hey, do you want to work on the next album with me after Lanois did the Birdie soundtrack with him? He told him pretty much, you're going to be here for a year. Sure he enough. didn't lie, that's nope. for sure. And, and there was thought of going with a different producer, but having done Birdie, they really felt like they had a connection there. The other people that spoke in the documentary also spoke highly of their chemistry in the booth as well. And you yeah. heard that throughout the entire process. And with the engineers, too. Part of the discussion was the song Sledgehammer, which Peter actually had written for what would be his next record. He wasn't planning on it being on So. That kind of surprised me because you think of it, it's the first thing most of us heard from the album. It hit you in the head like a sledgehammer. Yeah. It just had all the elements that you needed to go, wow, this is exciting stuff, right? And it almost didn't make it onto one of the biggest albums of the 80s. That's my point about that. Phew! Another one of those, phew, who knew? I know, who knew moments. Think about it. And that video is absolutely groundbreaking. They changed All video the music. For that. But the video, I mean, what they did with the claymation and how they put it together, and they talk a little bit about it in the documentary, is unbelievable. Peter, one of the many fantastic and And just really cool things about him is that he likes to bend everything in a way that it hasn't been done before. He likes to try new things, and the way he mixed world beats into his pop music and his rock and roll music on this album is fantastic. And he took so many different styles and put them together to make this album. And I can only imagine they were knee-deep in tape on the cutting room floor because it was done with two-inch tape. The funny thing is they were going to have Sledgehammer on the next record, and that turned around as soon as they started making it because even though it was done at the end of the sessions, towards the end of the sessions, they realized that they were short. Even in the age of CDs, you know, they didn't have enough really to make it a a two-sided vinyl album. So they talked to Laurie Anderson. They bring in This Is The Picture, the excellent bird song. And it's very different than a lot of the stuff on the record, but it is compatible. If you think about what that song does to balance textures and add things to to the album so there's another case where it wasn't going to be on a record and ended up in there because they went hey what about that we need we need something and we we have room for that and it was great to see Lori uh, talking in the documentary i'm a huge fan of her and, and her music 
But let's talk more about the songs on So That Everybody Knows. I mean, we got hit with so many hit records off of this. I think that was the thing that surprised probably even Gabriel. He had, like we've discussed, pretty good air support from the people who who liked him and loved his music in the radio world. In April, they released Sledgehammer. That just takes off. We, we just talked about it. it was top of the charts, top of the airplay, drive-in sales, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. Then they come back with Don't Give Up, a beautiful song that I absolutely adore. It's one of my favorites. And Dan explains in the documentary how Kate Bush just poured emotion out. So they quickly change gears and come out with In Your Eyes. talk about Yusu and Dor and Manu Kachi and all those guys having a major influence on Gabriel's sound. It's right there and it's unbelievable. After hearing Yusunu Dor and learning about him from this album, he also did a song with Nana Cherry called Seven Seconds and I ended up buying that album and his beats and his music and his songwriting is really beautiful. <laughs> You got to watch the documentary to get the full impact of it because they show Yusu and Gabriel on stage together as brothers dancing, yeah. uh, feeling the music. There's a lot of nice things that he has to say in there, too. But what an amazing song, In Your Eyes, uh, a huge hit for Gabriel, and it keeps the tide rolling with this album. Here's something I learned during the documentary as well, that they did 96 
takes or versions of In Your Eyes before they were able to cut and paste them all together to make one out of them? I saw that and actually had a note to talk about that. And since you brought it up, most people were thinking, what's the big deal? Well, in those days, you didn't have you know terabytes of data storage. You had physical two-inch tapes that held 24 tracks probably then, right? So you take each one weighs what, about five, ten pounds, somewhere yeah. in there. Oh, and huge. they had 96 of the fuckers in a wall. How to decide how to put it all together like a Frankenstein, right? Again, knee-deep in tape in that studio from all of the work they did. And they, they laughed about the fact that Peter Gabriel would say, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, do it again. I want another take. We're getting into talking about Manu because the funny thing about him getting into the project I found was uh, his friend kept calling him and telling him to call him back, and he thought he was being punked, so he never called him back. So eventually, Gabriel's like, so what's up with your friend? You know, he's not returning calls. So they called him together. It was one of those, what? It was <laughs> for real? He almost blew the session because he wasn't calling him back. Yeah. And his feel on these tracks, Dan does a great job of describing what they were looking for, what his concern was with bringing him in. Can he do this? And he just comes in and really flavors the tracks that he's on. I mean, Murata played a lot of the drums. What Manu Kachi brought, and then later brought to the stage for Peter Gabriel, was pretty incredible. I was watching the documentary. My son came in, and he was watching parts of it with me, and he kept asking who Manu was, and he loved the way he spoke, and he just loved his energy. I don't know what it was, but out of all the people in the documentary that he saw, my son was most drawn to Manu. Tells you something. Yep, tells you something about Manu, man. That dude's amazing. But 96 versions of that song, that's crazy. And I've heard about some crazy studio stories, but that's what you have first when you have resources. Second, when you have a barn where you can store tapes and stuff like yeah. that. There was no dubbing like, oh, let's dub this this eight bars over to another, because you lose quality, the, the depth of everything. So that it was literally cutting. And Ken Scott talks a lot about that in his book, from Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust, about the physical part of producing in those days. I can only imagine it was pretty physically grueling, especially when you were under a lot of pressure and you had a lot of tape to go through. I can only imagine how physically grueling and stressful it was. Holy cow. The next track they release is in early 87. It comes out in February. And we were talking a little bit about the video technology for Sledgehammer. And they really dig into it when they talk about Big Time. And that's another groundbreaking video from this album. When MTV was really still playing a lot of videos, the way that they show you that how they did the stop action and how they did um, the frame-by-frame -frame painting of things that were in shot, how they had a direct Gabriel, the stuff about the dancing chickens, all that, and how they pulled it all off is in the documentary we were talking about. So that's something you want to check out if you get a chance. Yeah, it's called Classic Albums. I think it's on Amazon Prime or Access TV, so you check it out. They have some incredible albums in that series. I think they did like 10 seasons of it, but there are a lot of good albums that have been put together in rock and roll. So it's a good series to check out if you want to learn a little bit about some of that incredible music you're listening to. 
it'll tell you how they got the beginning of Red Rain, which is the next single from the album. It comes out in the summertime, somewhere in there between Don't Give Up and In Your Eyes and the release of Red Rain. I actually met Peter Gabriel. It was so cool. Was it? Did you have a conversation with him? Well, I had to look it up, Marcus, because it was a long time ago, but it was November 30th, 1986. Peter Gabriel was in town for the So Tour, and I was working with John DeBella at MMR. He was there then, and I kind of got the word that I should come to the back room of the press box at the Spectrum, the old Philadelphia air-conditioned Spectrum, which is no longer there. And when I walk in the door, there's John sitting casually chatting with Peter Gabriel, and I got to spend a few minutes with him. I just found that being around him made you feel more peaceful more relaxed mm. and it was really nice and he was very nice but that was an incredible night and i just love his shows we could talk about that maybe in the second half we could talk more about that because i'm still digging into the singles we're talking about a lot of records that were released to radio and you look at it one two three four major chart topping airplay records for peter gabriel on the so record and that's what drove the sales and made it legend <laughs> in the documentary one of the things i really enjoyed we were talking about it a little bit before we cracked the mics today when they got to the point where sledgehammer was almost done they realized that it might sound better if they put some horns on it mm-hmm. and they could have used the Fairlight, i suppose but they actually went and contracted wayne jackson and the memphis horns and his part in the in there is really funny actually that's who's playing those horns those trademark horns on Sledgehammer. It's so funny when Wayne talks about his participation in the recording of Sledgehammer and how he was told what they wanted, and he's like, I can do that, we can do that, no problem, we got it. But he was like, man, all these guys were so weird and different, and we're good at talking to people. And he was really warm and friendly, but he was like, I've met, basically, I seem like he was saying, I've met so many musicians that are so unique and so different that I've had to learn how to uh, adapt adapt, and uh, be yeah. able to talk to all of them and to be able to relate to all of them. And he did. And if you listen to the horns, the horns are, they're ferocious on that album. When you're a Muscle Shoals uh, studio musician and you've played on hundreds and hundreds of exceptional songs that have become hits, I think you get a feel for what's going to be a hit or not. You know what else I learned in there that I did not know before? What? Because of Peter's affinity for country music, Dolly Parton was actually their first choice to do the woman's part on Don't Give Up. And I was like, what? I was so shocked when I saw that on the documentary as well. And the story behind this inspiration for the song is just as fascinating. You know, those old pictures of poor Americans during the Depression and stuff. Yes. They're beautiful pictures that are both sad and powerful in the same way because of the emotion that they captured. And it, it says a lot about Peter as a person and about how he cares about people. Funny how that song really could apply in a broad sense right now in the world, huh? People need to hang in there. We know you're listening from all different points on the globe and the situation is different everywhere, but our uh, friends and family here in the U S are very concerned. Don't give up. 
We can do this, right, Marcus? Yes, we, we can. can. Do it. We if can we can get through it in good humor, you can. And if we help even just a little bit, we're glad to do that. Yeah. You know what else about that song that I thought was really fascinating was Tony Levin talking about his quote-unquote unconventional string dampening method uh, using his kids' baby diapers to get that bass sound. Yeah. And he did different things. He had like the the deadened bass sound and then he would use the uh, the fretless alembic and yep. oh, oh, yep. oh and taking out yeah. over Tony Levin. I love that man. Tony Levin, Daniel Lanois, Manu Kache were my favorite parts of the documentary without a doubt because Tony Levin and his work with King Crimson some of my favorite in that time period. His work on this album is absolutely brilliant. He's just one of those musicians that you should learn about. When they were doing the record, Peter and Dan decided they needed some different sounds and some different feels. So Larry Klein, and this is my reference to the recording scene in Bath, England, uh, Larry Klein who at the time was married to my girlfriend, Joni Mitchell, was actually doing a session nearby and got word that they might be looking for somebody to do some bass work. So he went on by to uh, Ashcombe and uh, brought his wife with him. And he laid down a lot of the lines on Mercy Street because he also loved the poet Ann Sexton, which is who that song was for. So that's kind of a cool way to tie it together too. Larry and Joni go to the sessions how is it that Joni's voice isn't added somewhere in there in the layers of all the amazing voices that help to comprise the vocal parts of Peter Gabriel? So she could have been on there offering that a unique sound that she has. No wonder why not. You know, that's a very good question because, or a good thought to, to wonder because having somebody like Joni Mitchell right there in your studio while her husband's laying down some slick bass. Boom. Or she's having tea up at the house while you're down in the barn. Bring Joni down to the barn. Give me a little something for Red Rain, you know? Joni, there's no way Joni was up at the house having tea when all these musicians are in a <laughs> studio. Please. She's definitely in the midst of it. All this talking about Peter Gabriel so, Marcus, it's making me thirsty, man. I know. I'm parched, too. We definitely spoke a lot about Peter. Time for a beer on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. You know, one of the things that I appreciate is anytime I go into Crooked Eye Brewery right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro, I always feel good. And that includes feeling safe about where we're hanging out. You know what I'm talking about, Marcus? I definitely know what you're talking about as during the COVID pandemic, it is important that people feel safe when they're going out and about. Very important. And Crooked Eye has that warm, safe vibe. And they're doing everything according to the governor's directions. They're, they know that that's what's in everyone's best interest. But they're still serving, Marcus. That's right. The takeout, your growler, your crowler, your 16-ounce cans, all still there. All the wonderful flavors that you love about Crooked Eye Brewery. And don't forget when you stop in to get your takeout brews, wear a mask. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that Pete and Paul and Jeff and everybody, and we're learning too, is that it's a constantly changing landscape when it comes to what's going on. So I would urge all of you to follow Crooked Eye Brewery on Facebook, and you'll find out just what's going on there today, tomorrow, next week, and as things change. Crooked Eye Brewery, right in the heart of Hatboro. Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014, and we thank them for their support of the podcast. 
Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Are you refreshed, Ray? I am, Marcus, and ready to go on part two of our uh, classic album dig on Peter Gabriel's So here on the podcast. I want to talk about the songs that are on here, just kind of like go through them a little bit and the way that they sequence them. I thought it was interesting in the documentary, and I guess this was a more common practice than I was aware of. What they did, because they weren't sure what order to put these songs in, they recorded the, uh, the front and back ends, the last five, ten seconds of each song, and then took the clips and dubbed them on cassettes in all different ways so they could hear what in your eyes sounded like going into sledgehammer and 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 ways that didn't end up as the sequence so they finally go through that i guess they must have had a bunch of cassettes by then i, I think and they had over a hundred did they yeah something it like, was like crazy, 120 right? or something like that how the fuck can you keep them straight that's nope. what i'm saying oh i know <sighs> It's like de- it's like when you get demo tapes for something, yeah. you know, and you put the ones in the uh, yeah, we'll consider that this one we'll mm-hmm. think about and goodbye, yeah. and so you have a hundred cassettes and there's like twenty five thirty of them in the middle and there's ten over here and fifty <laughs> over there and what the fuck, you know? <laughs> but look, it was the eighties, not fully digital technology. That's why the videos that we talked about in the first half of the podcast today are even more amazing when you think about it because they couldn't just oh let's put a pastel swatch over them you know what i mean mm-hmm. they had to actually do it they settle on this run order and it becomes iconic classic and certainly his most successful album and he seemed very happy about it he never really cared about commercial success he just wanted to make the music he wanted to make so he starts with red rain and they're trying to get a specific sound and they can't quite get it all from what they're recording so who do they get sewer copeland come in and do some hi-hats but the funny thing is is at the very beginning of the record peter gabriel wanted no cymbals and no hi-hats and daniel lanois had to talk him into that because he was like what are you talking about you're gonna need it Red rain is coming down. Red rain is coming down. 
And the thing is, that's the way Gabriel had operated on his self-titled albums, that there was no big high-end. He didn't want that as far as the sound goes. And if you think about some of the sounds you get on those first four solo records, it explains a lot. But here, the beginning, he's blowing it away. Daniel's talked him into it. When they do the part where they show you how all the parts flow together and when they put it together on the board for you, it's an amazing part of the documentary. So you start there. It's very dramatic. It's it slides dumb. right into the big one that almost didn't make the record, Sledgehammer, right? I wanna be And that opening song, Red Rain, is extremely dark, extremely heavy. And then it lightens up a little bit with Sledgehammer. But Sledgehammer still definitely has a little bit of darkness to it. And boy, what a booty shaker that one is. I think that's one of those songs like Back in Black that everybody knows. Everybody knows Sledgehammer. Those of us who love Kate Bush... I remember seeing her for the first time on Saturday Night Live in the 70s and going, oh, yeah, I'm going to be checking in on this one and keeping up with her career. Don't give up cause you have There she is doing Don't Give Up, which we talked about a bit in the early part of the podcast. It's a song of hope. One of my favorite performances ever live was Peter Gabriel in the round. I believe this may have been at the new place in South Philly, Marcus. And it's a phone booth on stage. You can't see the band. Light on the the old-fashioned English phone booth. And he walks up and he, he uses the phone as a microphone. And he can play to all sides of the house. The whole thing's turning, so he's playing to all sides of the house. But when it starts really getting to the dramatic part, you know, he he starts walking away from the phone booth. You wonder, how long is the chord? They made it so that he could stand and sing at the end of the stage, leaning on it, leaning over the crowd with singing his part into the, into the phone. Oh, my goodness. Before that, this was always one of my favorite songs that nobody talks about much from this album. After that, it became a Stone Cold favorite. And a song that nobody really talks much about is That Voice Again, co-written with David Rhodes, who they didn't really talk much about in the documentary. Rhodes and Gabriel worked together for years. That's a great song. It shows you the consistency of that album and how song after song, it stays at a super high level and doesn't let up throughout the entire album. If everybody knows... Sledgehammer, Marcus, when you flip the vinyl over and you put on In Your Eyes, everybody loves that song. I don't know anyone who has ever had a bad word to say about In Your Eyes. I have to agree with you on that. And Say Anything helped keep that big a few years later, but that song is fantastic. Everything about it, it just makes you, it hits you right in the feels.
Again, that whole album hits you in the feels. It's the unit that he put together firing on all cylinders. Tony Levin, right? You got mm-hmm. David Rhodes, Manu Kachi. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the extra flavors of Larry Klein and Yusu Endor. Also on backing vocals that no one talks about much, Jim Kerr from Simple Minds. Yeah, I know. I saw that when uh, we were doing our prep for this, and I was like, oh, my God, Jim Kerr, Simple Minds. Holy cow. He's like, hey, Jim, drive down, do the vocals. Okay. I wonder how many takes he did. And it's all those little things that when you add them up, you can see it in the documentary how Lemoy adds them up, including, I never heard of Ronnie Bright, but he does the little real low part on In Your Eyes. In Your Eyes. Yeah. And, and that's part of what makes the song locked in your brain that's true those vocal harmonies are fantastic the way he layered all of the voices to make it flow and to make it just move through and then richard t on piano the the piano's beautiful yeah, in that song richard think t about was the, all over that record so <laughs> just, you know what what's really great is we're kind of updating the research department so we're developing things on the fly i actually got a proactive text from the research department while we're recording this podcast oh yeah what'd they say ronnie bright the bass vocalist that we're talking about on In Your Eyes? Yeah. Any of these groups ring a bell for you? The Coasters, the Cadillacs, oh my the God. Valentines. He also sang with Jackie Wilson. <laughs> we didn't even ask for help, and they gave us some. That right there shows you Peter Gabriel's knowledge of music inside and out. To be able to pull from so many different various areas there really are some places on this record where you can see his movement towards womad and his his own explorations uh of world music beginning and taking commercial shape and after that you have mercy street which is another beautiful song from the record that i don't think enough people pay attention to it's a definitely considered a deeper cut but again this is an album like you should do with all rock and roll albums Listen to it from front to back. Listen to it all the way through so you get a feel for for the album when you listen to it all the way through in a special way, especially that first time you hear it. For some perspective and to support Marcus, my brother, in his position, these guys went to the trouble to make 100 cassettes to figure out what order to put these songs in to make an album. It meant something. It means something. And you know what I found? Even if you're a Spotify person and you just listen to a lot of music on on stuff like that, you can get the album and listen to it in order. So do it. Yeah, don't um, don't hit it on shuffle. The album on shuffle. Listen to it uh, one through nine all the way through. Gives you artistic intention. This public service announcement from the Imbalance Brothers here at the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. <laughs> Big time. Big time, brother. And I want to thank everybody for their support of what we've been doing on this fucked up podcast. But somehow we're getting there. That song is another one. It's more like Sledgehammer than a lot of the other songs on the album. We talked a bit about the video and stuff. But, you know, beyond that, it's him exploring different sounds again. The lineup on that song alone is pretty solid. And Stuart Copeland played the entire drum track on that song as well. Sweet! 
right. And that dude's wicked. I mean, you've you've heard him in the police and his other stuff that he's done over the years, including a lot of studio work and uh, movie soundtracks as well. He is an incredible drummer, fast as lightning. And in that time, that dude was lightning fast, and he hits really well. So part of the crew on the next track, we do what we're told. And also on that voice again is L. Shanker, the violinist. Everybody goes calls him L because his his full name is pretty amazing. It's Lakshmanarayana. It's easier to just call him L. Shanker. <laughs> Definitely easier. Again, a small player in a big production whose contributions make a difference in how the, the album sounds and how it feels. Who else came in for one song? Nile Rodgers. He's a legend. One song he came in and played on. All these musicians came in and did that with Peter Gabriel. So that tells you that some of these, what these musicians knew about Peter Gabriel and how much respect they have for him as a musician and for who he is and for what he does. So to be able to get these kind, of, these kind of top tier players to come in. And do this on a once, you know, just come in, pop by, do a song, and then boogie. Pretty incredible. And it says a lot about you as a musician. Now, Peter Gabriel had been recording at the barn for a number of years, right? Yes. People knew that it was there. People knew if he was recording in the local community, right? Yes. Do you think that there was an element of, holy shit, do you hear what Gabriel's got going on over at the house? You've got to go over and see what's going on. And when you get there, they go, oh, Jim Carr, come on in. we got a part for you. And this one's coming by. Hey, can you get El Shanker over here? Kate Bush, how are you? Love you, hon. Come on in. You and I are going to spend an hour or two in the vocal booth. You know, things like that were going on against the backdrop of what they'd been creating. <laughs> it's so cool. Back to the 70s, remember, there were festivals and all kinds of stuff in Bath. That, it, it is kind of like its own unique little community within the overall British community. So, But let's talk a few minutes, at least, about the success of this record worldwide i i realize i did copy down all the charts and u.s it only hit number two but it was number one in the uk which when you're thinking about it man that's probably the big thing for him and them and a lot of the people who put the record together geffen was happy with what was happening here they were selling multi-platinum and it had done something that they'd hoped would happen when they put gabriel on the geffen roster a couple albums before that and that was him becoming an international superstar. And along the way, he got to be a spokesman for a lot of the causes and musical styles that he was fond of just because of what he had just achieved. Gold and platinum in countries like Spain and New Zealand and the Netherlands, Hong Kong, Germany, France and Belgium. It's sold everywhere on scale, big time, so to speak. That's on par with albums like Back in Black and Rumors and some of those. And I know it didn't hit those numbers in sales, but that kind of world domination on the charts is pretty incredible. I know that a lot of people like to measure that stuff like by sales, international sales and all that numbers. But when you look at an important album that did something while giving us all joy, great music, 
and selling a few at the same time. It's hard to top Peter Gabriel. So, and that's why we're talking about it here on the podcast. Yep. One of the many great things that we've discussed about this album is, is that it related to so many people of different musical backgrounds. And that is the power of Peter Gabriel's world beats and understanding of putting them together to make the sound that he made. Well, think of it this way. Okay. I mentioned DeBella earlier, right? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. He's older than me by a bunch of years. And then think of me where I was in, in 86 and then where you were turning 20, right? Yep. Three different slices of American rock and roll life as far as our ages go, years apart. And yet we all could agree that this was an amazing fucking record to the highest level. Yeah. And for people like John, who were part of Peter's career path, like both supporting them with airplay and in interviews and all that stuff, this is validation of everything you believed about this man. His mass appeal, not only generationally, but across the world, gargantuan. And this is the kind of music that is still not only relatable but relevant songs like don't give up or even more important more today relevant. than when they were written and the importance of that song because you can feel the pain and the suffering and still feel the light at the end of the tunnel make a big difference and that resonates strongly you know what else that song does and i think it's one of the most positive impacts it has it inspires empathy for the people who are in the story. You're right. And one other little Peter Gabriel factoid that I pulled from that little amazing documentary is that one of Peter Gabriel's biggest influences was Otis Redding because, like Peter, Otis was a drummer before a singer. Yeah, I saw that. And I was like, what? So that shows you how much of a student of music Peter Gabriel is. And we've mentioned him throughout this whole thing. The man who pulled all this together, and we haven't really talked much about Daniel Lemoyne. A genius. He really is. And if you look at the wide variety of people that he's worked with, from the new artists to the legends, Willie Nelson and Emmy Lou Harris. He you worked too. with Neil Young and Bob Dylan, right? And you too, most famously produced the Joshua Tree and Octoon Baby, my two favorite U2 records. But he also produces bands like Spoons, who are on the newer edge of progressive music. So he's an amazing character. And when they made all this, he was still a young buck. And I didn't realize, and you don't really get the picture from his look in the video, but he's like late 60s now. Really is, I think, as you pointed out, worth digging deeper into and might be a good reason for doing uh, a producer series, a, a series of podcasts within the podcast where we just focus on the producers just talking about what they've done and getting it on people's radar so they get the bigger picture, which is part of what we're doing here, growing this family tree. I love learning about music and I love learning about the people behind the scenes because they all have interesting tales to share and they all have interesting stories about what was going on inside their heads at the time this music was being made. So to hear all that and to have them share all that hopefully is inspiration for people moving forward so that the next generation can create great music by learning from their predecessors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I just, you know what I just learned? What? The research department is working overtime here. They just threw me a note that says, Daniel Lenoir wrote and performed the music for Billy Bob Thornton's movie Sling Blade. 
Did not know that. Also, in the uh, making of so, Daniel Lanois spoke openly about how Red Rain took the most out of him, how much of himself he put into the record. You feel his side of this as well. So. An icon in his own right, Peter Gabriel. So, this has been an interesting conversation and hopefully informative for our audience. Um, If you've got some questions for us anytime about anything, uh, call your mother and then send us an email at (laughs) imbalancehistory at gmail.com. It's always there and it's a good way to stay in touch. And people are finding other ways. Thank you for your comments online on Facebook. Um, a lot of people starting to make comments about the five favorites and things like that and giving us feedback on stuff. And that's a great way to stay in touch with us in real time or uh, as real as it gets with you and me, right? Yeah, no kidding. So uh, check us out on Facebook, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, on Twitter, at Imbalanced Histo. They never did give us the RY. And they never will. You're right. Uh, and uh, soon to be on Instagram. So good ways to stay in touch. You can always find all the episodes wherever you get your podcasts, including our website, imbalancehistory.com. So, one more punny. So, so, and we're ready to go. So, you ready to go? Thanks to our sponsors, One CBD Tie. Thanks for all you do for us here at the podcast. It's O N E C B D dot com. And to the fellas at Crooked Eye Brewery and the ladies, too. It's a fun place to go and have a fresh, frosty, cold one brewed on the premises at Crooked Eye and Hepra. We thank them both for their support as we head out the door for this episode of the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 